Good morning. We'll be reading from Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Good morning, church. It's an absolute joy to worship the Lord with you this morning. For our kids uh, in their elementary class, if you want to go, now's the time with Mr. Leone right there. It's an absolute joy to hear your voices, and uh, just I'm even so encouraged by our children singing and, and praising our Maker and Lord. So, uh, Different perspectives, they sharpen us. They help, help us to see the bigger picture. New perspectives and experiences come along. And they can help us to question or reject our wrong perspectives. They can sharpen our beliefs. And our understanding of the, of the truth can only grow greater as it stands up to scrutiny. I imagine many of us have had these experiences where you have this new experience for the first time and your way of thinking just gets challenged. Uh, in my life, for instance, uh, for the longest time, I had very little compassion for people who would call out of work sick. I didn't quite understand it. What do you mean you, you're sick and you can't come into work? I genuinely thought that they were slacking or making excuses or just trying to get out of their shift. But then, for the first time, I got the flu. And suddenly, like never before, I understood had this newfound compassion and empathy for what it meant to be sick. An entirely new perspective. For years, I received email after email with a sustainably focused tagline, this signature at the bottom, with an effort to care for the environment. And at the bottom of the email, it would say, please consider the environment before printing this email. Only one day to receive an email from a friend who worked as a tree farmer. It said, please print this email and support local tree farmers. That's a perspective I hadn't considered before. In the lives of people who come to salvation in Christ, we see far more than just a simple change of perspective. Their lives, their very reasons for living are completely transformed. The Apostle Paul, before an encounter with Jesus, he had thought that he was on the right track that he was living as, as good as he possibly could, as hard as he could after Christ, in all his might to please God. But his perspective was about to be changed. On the road to Damascus, his world would be rocked, and he would forever see things differently. Last week we saw in Philippians Paul's impressive resume. All the great things that he had accomplished as a strict follower of the Jewish law and custom. What he had been building for his entire life 
notch after notch on his belt, accomplishment after accomplishment. Let's look together at chapter 3, verses, verse 4, to see Paul's reason for his confidence. He said, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. His resume was immaculate. When it comes to having a reason to boast, Paul has it. He was the best at adhering to the Jewish law. He was one of the highest rank by tribe and status. So zealous he had killed those who opposed the custom. When it comes to morality and zeal as a Jew, Paul is like a black belt, PhD, Nobel Prize winner. He's not just cheering for his team, he's killing the other team so that his team can win. In the Jewish scene, scene Paul was the man. These things, these accomplishments, they prove every reason that he has to say that he has confidence in himself and in his achievements. But what we come to find out is that Paul realized in all these things, he had no righteousness at all. After being transformed by Jesus, his credentials would change. He would choose a new title, referring to himself as the chief of all sinners. In 1 Timothy 15, we read that that came Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is what Paul claimed. I am the foremost sinner in need of this salvation. What has the power to change someone like this? To go from boasting in your greatness to all of a sudden boasting in your weakness. It can only be a complete and utter change of heart. A transformation that can only come from knowing the one who is the author of all truth and life. Let's pray that we would meet with him this morning and that our perspectives would be conformed to his image. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. God, I just pray that anything that is of me, Lord, it would fall on deaf ears, Lord, but everything that is of you would saturate our hearts, Lord, would change our hearts. Would, would build us up in the faith. That we would know your steadfast love and that we would live for greater reasons than what this world has to offer. Lord, we'd see you as the greatest treasure of our life. Lord, help us to see your surpassing greatness this morning. In your name we pray, amen. In our text, we'll see Paul's transformation. It's most clearly seen in two things. Paul's new accounting in, of his life and in the new aspirations of his life. The new accounting of his life we'll see in verses 7 and 8, and in his new aspirations we'll see in verses 9 through 11. Paul's perspective had been flipped. The things he'd once put so much stock in, they did not matter to him. He says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is using accounting terms here to describe the gains and losses of his life. The things that he had put stock in, the things that he had seen as gain, they are now counted as loss. And he goes even further in verse 8, saying, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
He is an entirely new account of the value in his life. Everything has changed. If we were looking at a big ledger of Paul's life, on one side, all of the profits gained from his accomplishments, his observance of the law, his earthly status, his zeal as a persecutor of Christians, all of that gain has now been transferred to the loss column. His most valuable assets in the flesh are now liabilities. Paul had become a Christian, and he now knows that Jesus excels and surpasses everything else. That Christ had become the true value of his life, and in light of him, these things had no worth. If it was not living for Jesus, it couldn't be a gain. Paul has a new bottom line. All of his former gains added up to one big substantial loss. I think about how the Philippian church might have received this sentiment from Paul. The people of Philippi, they took great pride in being citizens of a Roman colony. A large population had served in the army. They were retired, honored, military veterans, esteemed with a lifetime of accomplishment. But no matter their rank, they were all at a loss when measured against the surpassing worth of Christ, according to Paul's new accounting. Let's put the spotlight on our lives for a moment. What about your life do you value the most? One way we can better understand where our value is placed is to ask ourselves, if your life were to reach an ideal conclusion, what would it be building up to? What are we after? It could be your career, maybe how you are viewed at work, the personal accomplishments you have or, the, or that you hope to achieve. Because of your status or title, you may deem yourself important and this may carry some, some self-importance or the desire to get that title or to get that salary or compensation and respect you deserve. Maybe it's your social standing before others, your great personality, yearning for others to sing your praises or, or being devastated when you fail them. This can play out in relationships. This can play out in our marriages, in our parenting. The attention and love we can get from others can be our aim. Maybe you've grown to take pride in your decision-making, your competency, your ability to innovate, to create order. Maybe your value is in your education, your training, your great knowledge, your wealth of experiences. Probably one of the weirdest ones is that we can even value above God the church we go to or the theology that we hold to as right and proper suddenly looking down on others who don't ascribe to our way of doing things. Every bit of Paul's energy in life had been given to the pursuit of following the Jewish law. Paul had accomplished so much only to realize it had mattered so very little. Does this ring true in our lives? That nothing compares to the surpassing worth found in Jesus. Do we live as though when the scales of life are balanced, you can put everything on one side with all its weight, prominence, the culmination of our life experiences and accomplishments, all of our degrees, our pedigrees, all of the skill and talents of everyone in this room, and all these things that we value so much, put them all together, and it would have no value when compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. 
Paul's not speaking hypothetically as one who has not tasted the surpassing worth and supreme value of Jesus. He reminds them that he has lost all things. Everything he had, he has lost. He suffered greatly so that Christ would be his. Just look at verse 8. For the sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The loss that Paul has experienced, this cannot be exaggerated. He has been excluded from the security and privilege of his own people, the Jewish community. They reject him as a traitor. He's been written off by friends. He's lost the security of his home. He's been tortured. He's become a constant traveler with no home, a prisoner for the sake of Christ. The suffering and punishment he has endured is staggering. Just listen to to this list that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Are there servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Paul, he's not stating these losses as a way of complaining. He's not saying, woe is me, here's all that I've been through. He's gone through these trials and is on the other side of them. Christ is worth it all. He's lost all things, but in light of gaining Christ, he counts them as rubbish. He discards them. And rubbish here can mean excrement, manure, Garbage, kitchen scraps. It is not pretty. You don't want to play with this garbage. Raccoons would probably run away from it. I don't know. But this is how Paul sees these things that he has lost. He once had such confidence in his humanity and in his flesh. And now anything that stands in the way of gaining Christ is perceived, is rejected as garbage. Instead of glorying in these accomplishments that he once had hanging on his wall, more for what they are. He envisions glorying in his accomplishments as sitting on a dung heap. They no longer mean what they used to. What changed him? Isn't it amazing that this transformation would take place in his life? What could do this? All these things he had sought so hard to attain, the hours, the efforts, to call these things rubbish, to live as though they are rubbish, to suffer these things for one purpose, for one goal, that he may gain Christ. You may have heard of this student who graduated from King's Academy. He earned the status of valedictorian, the best grades of all his peers. And in his speech at graduation, he spoke of all the stress and time and toil and sacrifice that he had worked so hard over this past year to gain this goal. He even neglected relationships because he just had this singular focus and he finally got it. Amazing. 
And he said, just it rushed over him, and it felt good for about 15 seconds. And then after that, he felt nothing. He got it, and it was empty. He went on to say that working hard is good, of course, but it should, be not, it should not be at the expense of relationships with others. Paul was working and toiling all the while he did not have a relationship with God. The one he thought he was zealously living for, he didn't even know him. Just like Paul, we too can have an accounting problem. If you're tempted to believe that fulfillment is found anywhere outside of Christ, you're believing a lie. There's nothing that satisfies apart from Christ. Just listen to how the Scriptures speak of the beauty found in gaining Christ. See in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and he bought it. A treasure hidden in a field, a pearl of great value. The buyer selling all they have in order to buy that field, in, in order to buy that pearl. Just like Paul's testimony, the response to finding the goodness found in Jesus is to give up everything so that he might be ours. Before knowing God, Paul thought his ledger was full of gain, but what he did not realize, despite all his accomplishments, despite all of his learning, what he did not realize is that he had a debt that far outweighed any asset he possessed. He stood as a sinner before a righteous God, in all of his self-righteousness and zeal, he was doomed to hell with a debt that he could never pay. And this is the same default status that we have as sinners. We are in debt. But Christ paid that debt in full. He lived a life 100% perfect, 100% with the right accounting of value in his life. And he lived perfectly for the glory of God. And in his perfection... He counted the cost. He went to the cross dying for all the sins of humanity, liberating us from our debts of sin and giving us all gain in Him. Paying that debt of God's wrath would not keep Him in the grave. Triumphantly, He would conquer death and rise again as our right Savior and Lord of His people. And for all those who would turn and repent from their sins, He would cleanse them of the garbage in their life, the rubbish that they live for, and give them a treasure of infinite worth, himself. You see, Paul had to realize that Christ does not become ours by effort, but by the rejection of effort. No matter Paul's greatness or acumen or his religious fervor, he can never pay the debt of his sin before a holy God. He had to give up himself give up the labors of his life and realize the only hope of being right with God is found in the righteousness of another. No matter the sweat and the hours spent, Paul's righteousness would never attain it. It could never attain it. Our righteousness can never make us right with God. 
Only by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ can our ledgers be wiped clean, our debt removed, and our assets overflowing with the infinite worth, Christ alone as our credit. A profound reorientation had occurred in Paul's life. Does a profound reorientation need to occur in your life? Do you need a new accounting of where your value is found? This morning, do you see Jesus as worthy of everything? Is everything lost compared to his surpassing worth? So many things, like sirens, they cry out for us to place our self-worth in them, to distract us. They have to be replaced. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else. Who wants to spend their life living for a rubbish heap? Who wants to stand in judgment before their maker, holding up filthy rags of our own righteousness? Here's the thing. You can live fully for the world, being successful in all the ways that look grand in the world's eyes, and be applauded for it. You can have a moral life and miss out on knowing Jesus, as as Jim stated in his prayer. Paul was the elite of society. He had a great life. His peers probably asked him, what are you doing, Paul? Why are you giving all this up, throwing it all away? The things that we can treasure so much, that we give so much urgency to in our daily lives, much of them will not be on our thoughts in our deathbed. Live your life for the surpassing worth of Christ. Give him your all. He is worth it. Paul has this new accounting of his life. and This new accounting would result in new aspirations. These aspirations are something that all true Christians share. Let's turn our attention to these new aspirations of his life in verses 9 through 11. His first aspiration is first that he would be found. That he would be found in him, not having a righteousness of, his, of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul aspires to a righteousness, meaning being in the right with God. Righteousness here could easily, easily be replaced with the word justification. This justification is a status that all Christians share. A few things about it. It's secured by God, sending His Son to die for sinners. It is by faith, meaning it is secured through faith in Christ. Faith is the means, but the object of that faith is Jesus. And faith is not a human work or virtue. Faith is granted by God. And then lastly, when we trust in Christ, we acquire the righteousness of God. And this is no comparison to any righteousness that we could achieve. It's hard to make comparisons about God because none of them do him justice. But if his righteousness was a professional cleaning service that came to your house, cleaned everything spotless and immaculate in a way that it would never get dirty again, how good would that be? That's going to happen in the future. There's going to be like a Roomba for the whole house. Our righteousness, by comparison, would be more like leaving all of the 
the infants and toddlers in our church alone in a home for three hours and asking them to clean the house. In our works in self-righteousness, we may be able to long jump 10 feet. And in Paul's work and his righteousness, he probably could have long jumped 50 feet. But the gulf of righteousness that needs to be hurdled over in order to get to God is the widest part of the Grand Canyon. There is no DIY righteousness. But if God pronounces us right with Him, we are secure forever. Paul has seen the folly of his own self-righteousness. He abandoned his own righteousness. And he wants nothing more than to be found in Him. Jesus is now his permanent address. Not a righteousness achieved, but a righteousness received. Paul's second aspiration is in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. If being found in him and attaining righteousness through faith is justification in the life of a Christian, knowing him and the power of his resurrection is the sanctification in the life of a believer. How astonishing is it that Paul writes this after knowing and walking with Christ for 30 years, and yet he yearns to know Him more. How little he knew on that, of the Lord on that road to Damascus, but now it's everything to know Him. Most important things in our, thing in our life is to know God. And to know Him is to live in His extraordinary power, the very power that raised Him from the dead. And by this power, our hearts have been changed. As we know Him, we grow in grasping God's love. We become characterized by rejoicing and thanksgiving. We're able to love and pray for our enemies. And to say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Every once in a while, in my sin nature, I see the allure of something. And man, that, that would be nice to have. That would be great. I, would, I see some fulfillment there. My brothers and sisters, don't you know that you could have everything this world has to offer and not have Jesus and you would have nothing? The more and more we see his glory, the more and more we want to give it all for him. We, we crave what we feed upon. The riches in Him are unending. They can never be fully mined. And the third and final aspiration of Paul we see in verses 10 and 11. We read, And may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. His aspiration is to share in Christ's suffering, to become like Him in His death. Paul is not some masochist, pain lover, whose goal is to suffer. But he knows that the inevitable consequence of being a follower of Christ is, is to suffer. We've heard all that he has been through. For the sake of Christ, Paul has lost all things. And by participation in his sufferings, Paul is becoming more and more like Christ. Of all the things about this week's sermon... This one aspiration of Paul has weighed on me the heaviest. I think it's weighed heavy because in my lifetime experience of church, this concept seems so foreign. In my aspirations, 
I could be around my Christian friends in relative comfort, avoiding persecution, not taking risk, and I could see this aspiration become easier, uh, becoming easier to avoid if our small church continues to grow in number. It becomes all too easy to separate ourselves from the world, not in the good way. I mean, to not even think about what happens outside these doors. It becomes all too easy to make the delights of this world our aim. To have Christ, but to not give too much of ourselves. And we kind of want a little of the world too. Right, gravitating towards what is most comfortable. Gravitating what is easiest. Gravitating those that are like, to those that are like us and avoiding those who are not. We should be alarmed in our lives when we see something that ceases to match up with God's Word that's in our lives. Of all His aspirations, I think most of us would enthusiastically sign up to be found in Him, to know Him, but to share in His sufferings? Does sharing in the sufferings of Jesus match your Christian experience? Knowing the power of His resurrection, and, and His participation in sufferings, these are two inseparable aspects of His experience in knowing Christ. It is impossible to know the power of His resurrection without the participation in His sufferings. All believers are called to suffer Christ. We see this in this letter. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7, You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. By his imprisonment, Paul and the Philippians are both partakers of grace. Later in Philippians 1, verse 29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Jesus said to his disciples, in John 15, verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is to be expected. This comes with the territory. Christ's likeness will lead us to Calvary. The godly life is to be persecuted. And we must renounce our confidence in the flesh and know Christ, and be conformed to Him in His humiliation and in His exaltation. May we never be accused of wanting the exaltation, the glories, the goodness of Christ without the humiliation going low. Jesus calls us to hard things. Paul emptied himself of his national heritage, his social class, his religious accomplishments. And just like Christ, he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. What hard things might God be calling you to? How might you need to die to self and pursue obedience? Not trusting what you see, but knowing that He is with you. This life in Christ is not a momentary sugar high. We don't throw back a Red Bull for Jesus. It's a hard, sacrificial, day in, day out labor. And it is totally worth it. Just listen to this account of Jesus' disciple in Acts 5. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus 
and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejecting, or rejoicing, not rejecting, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Without resurrection power, our sufferings would be pointless and futile. This would make no sense for to have it as an aspiration. We would have no assurance of future victory, but we do. We walk in the security of our Savior through all things. These disciples were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Rejoicing after a beating. They might say, thank you, God, for entrusting me with this little bit of persecution. There must be a greater hope than just these earthly circumstances. This is the resurrection power. For the privilege of knowing the Master better, no suffering is too great. Through Paul's new accounting and his new aspirations, Paul seeks to live every day in light of the last day. He's not entitled by his status as apostle, but is hoping that by any means necessary, he may attain the resurrection from the dead. In verse 11. Here we see the glorification in the Christian life. That one day we would be raised up to glory to be with the one who we are living for. Perfect and complete with him for all eternity. Being found in him, knowing him, but there will be no suffering then. The aim of every step of the journey is to know Christ. Personal, intimate knowledge of Christ. Christ eclipses everything else. And now, as we seek to live for the surpassing worth of Christ, one grace that we are blessed with is celebrating the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The taking of the bread and the fruit of the vine is a visual picture of the gospel. A visual picture of our new accounting and our new aspirations in Christ. In this supper, not only do we hear about Jesus' death for us, but we see his body given for us. We taste it. We smell it. We touch it. The Lord's Supper has several meanings of profound significance. The Lord's Supper looks back in remembrance of Jesus' initiation of the new covenant by shedding his blood on the cross. The Lord's Supper looks forward to the glorious last day, the culmination of history, that Christ did not remain dead, he was resurrected, he ascended, and he will return. 1 Corinthians, we, we read, Paul declares, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper also testifies to the unity of believers. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The communion table at Covenant Hope is open to all baptized believers who are members of this church or another church that preaches this same gospel and are walking faithfully with Christ as their Lord and in unity with their Christian brothers and sisters. If you're not a baptized Christian, if you're not a member of a gospel-proclaiming church, 
If you're not walking faithfully with the Lord or you have broken relationships that need to be reconciled, we'd ask you not to participate. For the Bible warns in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. People are excluded from the supper not because they are not a part of a club, but because this new life in Christ is not something trivial. And we don't want anyone not living in this new life to bring judgment on themselves or to have false assurance or falsely claim it. If we are in Christ, we are new creations. And while you may not be living for Christ today, this same hope can be yours if you turn from your sins and trust in Him alone. It's a free and glorious gift. It changed Paul's life. It's changed many of our lives. And it can change yours. And we'd love to talk to you more after the service about how you can know Him. In a moment, if you wish to partake the Lord's Supper, we'll uncover the elements and you can walk up and receive them. Please take a moment to pray and meditate on the meaning of this time. And then we'll eat the bread and drink the cup together, symbolizing our unity in Christ.